Well, if you want to grab a pew Bible in front of you, we're on page 1002. Um, We are back in our sermon series, The Letter to the Hebrews. And, uh, well, again, our sermon text is quite long, but don't worry. Uh, We're going to take it in chunks, and we're not going to dig really, really deep into it. Um, We're going to cover Hebrews 3 into and then partway, most of the way through Hebrews 4. This passage focuses upon an important theme in the Bible, rest. And it helps us to refocus our lives where our, upon where our ultimate rest must come from. And it's true, right? There's a lot of restlessness in this world. Recent research has uh, pegged the global sleep aids market at $64.3 billion a year and growing at 6.7% annually. We lose sleep over a lot of things. What is it for you? And our lack of rest isn't just tied up in this lack of sleep. Our waking lives can be restless too. We moderns, we live at a frenetic pace. If you just need proof, think about how tired you were when you returned from that last vacation. Now, please understand this. Humanity is restless because our souls are restless. This restlessness of heart is not anything new. St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the mid-4th century A.D. um, up into the early 5th century A.D., um, if you read his autobiography, you will find that his life was a lot like ours. Before coming to faith in Christ, he pursued all kinds of pleasures and religions and philosophies of life. But then Augustine came to see that God has made mankind with a longing deep inside that only God can fill. As he famously wrote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Do you see this restlessness in your own life? Well, the writer to the Hebrews shows us that God has provided a rest for his people that can and must satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Now, before we read our first section, here's the main idea that's going to drive us this morning. The writer is trying to get across this point. Only Christ can deliver us into the rest our souls long for. Let me repeat that. Only Christ can deliver us into the rest that our souls long for. Our first main point describes how the supreme rest of Christ is given to us. Then the next two points, they challenge us, first to hold fast to this rest in Christ, and then to fight hard to enter his rest. Before we read our first, or enter into our first main point, let me pray. Father in heaven, Um, We don't like to think we're restless. We pretty much like to think in our own strength we can control things at least well enough to to make ourselves a little bit more at ease. We pray that you would reveal to our heart, as your word says in our passage, that that it cuts deep into the soul, dividing joint and marrow. It's your word and it's active. May that active word from heaven remind us of how deeply flawed we are, but also how much grace you have given us in Jesus. We pray. In the name of our Savior, amen. All right, first point. The supreme rest of God is found in Christ. And the big idea here is is the rest that your soul longs for 
comes only by being in Christ's house. Now, I know it's been a few weeks since I was last up here, but if you remember that passage right before ours, the writer was showing God's people that, that Jesus is our what? Our divine brother king. You remember that? Uh, and we are his brothers and sisters in his household. And so he continues this language into chapter 3. And so let's begin. Verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Great passage, right? So first I want us to see that, that God's rest comes to God's house. Household language, did you pick up on it? It's everywhere in this passage. Moses and Jesus were faithful over God's house. He addresses us as brethren, brothers, brothers and sisters. And then we read in verse 6, in case you're wondering, if in doubting, it says, and we are his house. What a magnificent truth to consider. Next, I want us to see that the rest that God gives us flows from his grace. God's grace oozes out of verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, brethren, you who share in a heavenly calling, and check this out. We don't just dwell in God's house. We are his house. Verse 1, he points to the grace of God that has brought us into his household. What does the, the writer call us to? After saying these things, that we have this calling, um, he says uh, that we are his household. He says, you who share in a heavenly calling. Did you know that? As Christians, we share in a heavenly calling. Now check this out. The English word church is a translation of the Greek word, ekklesia. It's a two-part word, ek meaning out, plesia, which comes from the verb kaleo, which means to call. So literally, uh, the church, ekklesia, we are the called out ones. <laughs> That's who we are, Grace Church. We are the called out ones, called out from God. And because God is the one who does the calling, we must understand that this calling is grace upon grace upon grace, right? Think about it. Unless God calls us, unless God initiates um, his words to earth to bring us this rest, we will be forever hopeless and restless. You see yourself this way. Do you rejoice that you belong to the called out one of God, ones of God? And notice what the writer does in these opening verses. He calls us to lift our eyes to Jesus, whom we confess with joy and delight. After that first introductory part of verse 1, he says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Understand this, Christians, we are confessional people. 
We hold to truths and we confess with our tongue just who God is and what he has done for us. The truths that we confess, these are what give us confidence and hope and they allow us to be at rest on this restless earth. We are to look to Jesus, says the writer, the apostle and high priest of our confession. An apostle is God's representative on earth. A high priest is man's representative in heaven. What a wonderful picture of who Christ is for us. We confess that Jesus is both these for his brothers and sisters in his house. He is God's apostle on earth and our high priest in heaven. Consider Jesus, he says. He is the one that must capture our hearts. He is the one we must confess. Now, if you remember, the original audience was enduring hardship and persecution, and some were considering going back to their Old Testament Judaism. Some were turning from Jesus to go back to Moses. So the writer wants them to see how ridiculous it is to turn back to anything now that Jesus has come. So he shows them that Moses, as great as he was, was just another human servant in God's house. But Jesus is supremely glorious because he is faithful over God's house. Did you pick up on that? As God's son. And the writer wants us to understand that Moses, as great as he was, he served in God's house with the purpose of pointing us to God's son, who will come later. Jesus is the son of God who alone can lead us into perfect rest. That must be our confession. Jesus is faithful over God's house. Listen, even when we fail, even when we compromise, even when we are weak, Jesus is faithful. If you've been a Christian for a little while, you know this is true. The message of Christianity isn't go and be faithful so you can be loved by God. The message of Christianity is rest your soul upon the Son of God who alone is faithful. Today we aren't so much tempted to leave Christ to go back to Old Testament Judaism. Anybody here? No? Maybe? Maybe not? I'll tell a story in future weeks of someone I know who did, but. We are frequently tempted to go back to our old lives before Christ and seek rest from lesser things. We turn to the so-called cures of the secular, restless world. We either double down on the false belief that if we just work harder, we will capture that rest, or we double down on Netflix and Ambien. Is this hitting home with any of you? The writer here says, consider Christ. He alone is your source of supreme rest. And do you remember Jesus' call and his promise to us in Matthew 11? I'm sure you probably know it. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So the writer has helped us to look up to consider Christ as the one who gives God's household supreme rest. That is the grace that God has bestowed upon us. Now, in light of this truth, what are we to do? How are we to respond? Well, our final two points we'll address. 
how we are to respond. First, we're to hold fast. And second, we're to fight hard. First, holding fast to rest. The big idea here is this, that, that because has, God has given uh, this world, his household, supreme rest in Christ, let us hold on to him. Remember the concern the writer has for this congregation, many of them to appear to be at a crossroads, so to speak. If you turn to the left and keep holding on to Christ in the gospel, or turn to the right and, and loop back to the old way of living apart from Christ. In the next section we're about to read, the writer warns them and us not to be like that unbelieving generation that Moses led out of Egypt. They heard God's promises given through Moses that rest was coming in the promised land. They had just to travel in through the wilderness in order to get there. But instead of holding on to the promise of rest, they hardened their hearts and whined and complained. In the end, they proved themselves to be unbelievers, and in the end, they never experienced God's rest. The writer wants us to learn from them. So let's study verses 6 through 19 in chapter 3. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a call to hold fast to Christ and experience his rest. Verse 6, we are his house if indeed we hold fast. Hold fast to what? Our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Then in verse 14, he repeats what we're to hold fast to. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. What a beautiful picture. If indeed we hold our original what? Confidence firm to the end. Christian, in this restless world, we are to hold firmly to our confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ who is faithful over God's house as a son. Listen, no other confidence compares how so? Why? Listen, our confidence as Christians isn't in an idea or a thought or some sort of truth or theological proposition, right? No, our confidence is in a person. And when Christ is our confidence, when we hold fast to him, 
we become what? We become those who boast in this hope that God has given us. Did you know that when the Apollo 11 astronauts were strapped in their rocket seats, imagine that, there were doctors in mission control monitoring their vital signs. Now, a normal adult at rest has a resting heart rate like anywhere from 60 to 100 beats per minute. But check this out. When those men sat 34 stories high <laughs> aboard that giant behemoth of a Saturn V rocket with 950,000 gallons of highly explosive fuel beneath them, Neil Armstrong's heart was beating at a calm 110 beats. 110, like mine's at 150 just talking about this, right? When asked about his calm in the midst of this chaos, Armstrong said that he and his crew attributed their calm to the confidence they had. Rest in the midst of difficulty. Christian, the gospel calls us to place our confidence in Christ and hold fast to him. But now there's also this warning for us, right? How so? The writer says that, that, that there's a reality that can come into your life when you experience hardships and trials, and that reality is that, is that you harden your heart towards God. The writer says that the hardness of heart is symptomatic of an unbelieving heart. We see this in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, some may be thinking, I thought the Bible teaches that once you're saved, you're always saved, and, and uh, this seems to make it seem like someone can lose their salvation. Well, that's not what this passage is saying. Remember, as I stated in an earlier sermon, that this letter is more like a pastor writing a sermon to these churches, and, and this writer knows what every pastor knows, that churches have in their midst people who really don't believe. They seem to go along with everything. They like hearing about God, especially God's mercy and God being good. They like being around God's people, but they really don't believe. And one of the ways you can find out is by watching what people do during hardships. In Moses' day, God delivered hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery, and he called out to them through Moses saying, I will be your God. I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will bring you into a good land, overflowing with milk and honey, a land to call your own, a place where you will prosper and experience rest that I give you. The promise, problem was in order to get to the promised land, they had to pass through the wilderness, and it was taking longer than the people wanted. And though God was feeding them manna from heaven, they grumbled and whined and complained, and remember what they demanded of Moses? Take us back into slavery, they said. See, God was testing them in the wilderness. Some may think, my God would never test people. But think about it. Testing is good for us. At the end of the math test, we know if we possess knowledge of mathematics, right? And a good test to take is a driving test. We want all of our drivers on the roads to have been through a driving test, do we not? And at the end of a difficulty of life test, we will know if our hearts 
have gone astray in unbelief or not. The problem with the Israelites and the problem that we can have today is this. When we find ourselves in a test or trial, instead of resting in God, we begin testing God. God, how in the world could you allow this to happen to me? If you really love me, I would not be in this wilderness. And then we put God to the test. And how did God respond to the faithless rebellion and the grumbling in Moses' day? It's a strong warning. They never entered into God's rest. That whole generation died in the wilderness. And worse, they never entered into God's eternal rest. This uh, past week, I was in New Orleans at a conference. Yes, I put on like five pounds. Oh, the food was so good. Um, I stand before you amazed at how, how God used me when I was there and spoke through me. I shared my testimony and I shared the gospel every day, multiple times a day, with almost every person I met. It was truly remarkable. Uber drivers, farmer from Quincy, Illinois, a homeless man who ended up taking a shower in my hotel room. And there was this woman named Anna who was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. She had left it. She was restless. After hearing her story and how the Seventh-day Adventist church was just one restless rule after another, she said she cannot believe in a God who allows suffering. And she pointed to Job, the quintessential sufferer, and how God allowed suffering. And she made sure to point out not just allowed suffering, God approved of it. And my God would never do that. God cannot be like that. I took the moment then to tell her I was a pastor. <laughs> and I would like to try to show her what Job's story shows us, that not just that God allows suffering, even allows it into our lives, um, but that he's able to give people rest in the midst of it. And she broke down and cried, cried, sobbing. By the way, as, as, we were, as I was sharing the gospel with her, there was this couple, they were eavesdropping, I didn't know it, at the table next to us. And they got up to leave and they said, excuse me, excuse me, I just want to say that we've enjoyed every word you've been saying. <laughs> <laughs> she broke down and cried. Yes, God allowed Job to be tested by Satan and Job experienced suffering that none of us most likely will ever have to face. And he wrestled with God, he cried out to God, he got some really poor advice from some well-intentioned friends. But then God spoke, and God's word was sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cut deep into Job, and it humbled him. And in the end, Job held fast to his confession and boasted in his hope. And then he made this grand confession a little bit earlier. He says this, you guys know what this is, you've heard of Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. <laughs> How my heart yearns within me. That, my friends is the confession of a heart at rest in the gospel. 
Let me ask you, is this your confession too? Like Job, do you hold fast to your confession? And do you boast in this hope? You see, this is how we're to experience rest in this broken world. We hold fast to the certain hope that Jesus' life and death and resurrection bring rest to all who believe. Not a perfect rest in the current age, but in the age to come, rest for sure. There is a promised land coming. This allows us to be at rest in the middle of our difficulty. See, God's indictment of that first generation is seen in verse 10. What does he say there? He says, they always go astray in their heart. Why? They have not known my ways. Anna didn't know God's ways. Those people in the wilderness didn't know God's ways. But unlike that generation that died in the wilderness, Job came to know God's ways. And if you share in Christ like Job, you know what God's ways are too, don't you? And what are God's ways? We confess. Through darkness comes dawn. Through adversity comes triumph. Through certain failure comes victory. Through humility comes exaltation. Through the cross comes resurrection. And through the wilderness comes rest. And so know this. Take heart from this. If you are a Christian, what does it say here? You share in Christ. And so suffering isn't just Christ's way, it's to be our way too. You know, some of us here may be missing out on experiencing rest in Christ because you are so busy trying to flee your current circumstance. For some reason, you come to equate rest with ease. And so you're exerting all of your energy trying to get yourself out. All the while, Christ is saying, let me in. Now, knowing this changes how you live in the present. Instead of demanding God to deliver you your rest on your terms, you seek rest in Christ in the midst of your trials. And, if, and you find Christ's promise to you to be true. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our first point of application is that we're to hold fast to Christ, our confession, to experience his rest. Our last point is this seems counterintuitive. We must fight for rest. Our final section is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Before we read that, though, um, what we'll see here is that though the rest of God is a gift of God's grace, it's something that we must fight for. Fighting for rest seems like an oxymoron, right? But, but isn't it true that that many of the good things, they just don't simply come to you. You have to fight for them. We have to fight to keep the pounds off. We have to fight for freedom. As they say, nothing ventured, nothing gained. In some ways, rest is no different. In the last section, the writer issues another warning. Who here likes warnings? <laughs> All right. Um, we might not like warnings, but we know they are necessary and they are good. All right, Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, 
but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua, Joshua was the one who eventually led them into the promised land after Moses, right? For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our passage shows us that the rest God gives us is something that we must fight for. And with all fights, they usually begin with like a healthy sense of fear, do they not? The writer says in verse 1, let us fear. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Fear motivates us, right? Today we have this acronym, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. I mean, the younger kids think they invented that, I know. Um, but FOMO causes people young and old to do all kinds of things. And if you think FOMO's new, it's not. It's, it isn't. The writer issues a FOMO warning. Did you pick up on that? In verse 1, he says we need to have a fear of missing out when it comes to eternal rest only God can give us. And then he points to the nation of Israel in the wilderness. They heard the message of God's covenant grace. But when they heard God's voice, they hardened their hearts. So the writer calls us to a healthy fear of missing out on the rest of God. Rest is also a fight because it calls us to a holy obedience. Say you play on an NFL football team, perfect for uh, Super Bowl Sunday, right? And your team stinks, like really bad. Definitely not um, the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, maybe two years ago. Uh, but you have a new coach. And at the first practice, he tells the whole team, he says, team, I'm going to get us to the Super Bowl, but for us to get there, you're going to have to practice harder than any other team in the NFL. Now, who on the team has genuine faith? Is it the many who stand up and say, yeah, coach, that's awesome, Super Bowl, woohoo? Or is it the few who obey the coach and practice harder than anybody in the NFL? Faith leads to an obedience. Faith isn't just listening, it's obeying. 
try to process this. I, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, yes, that is so true. I never thought of it that way before. The gospel isn't just a suggestion for you to consider. The gospel is a command to be obeyed. Read 1 Peter. It's all throughout there, obeying the gospel. And of course, listen to Jesus' words at the opening chapter of Mark's gospel. Here's what Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come near. That's what's happened. Repent and believe the good news. <laughs> Repent and believe the good news is not a suggestion. It's a command to be obeyed by the king of heaven. Now, those in Moses' days, they received the good news, but they failed to enter God's rest because of disobedience. They flat out did not believe. We're going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, all right. Remember how they told Moses? What did they say? Like, Moses, you're awesome. We're so glad you're our leader. We love God. We will go wherever you lead us. But as soon as hardship came, they said, we want quail, and we're getting out of here, <laughs> right? Take us back to Egypt. We prefer slavery. At least we had three hots in a cot. Rest is also a fight because we have to strive for it. I'm not making this up. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I know it sounds contradictory, but rest is work. A number of you here have taken that Dave Ramsey financial peace course that we offer every now and then. And one thing that Dave Ramsey hammers home over and over is that financial peace is actually work, right? See, he says that if financial peace was easy, everybody would have it. But it's not. We have to work at it. In a similar way, rest is work. As this passage says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So though the gospel is a gift from God, we must strive for it. We must obey it. In a real sense, we must fight for it to become a reality in our lives. Think about it, right? I mean, if our own hearts weren't problematic and troublesome, if we weren't so fickle, if we weren't so easily tempted to give in to sin, then we wouldn't have to fight for it. But I don't know about you, I got to fight for it. Mark Middlecoff is still not the person I know I need to be. I'm a long way from who Christ is calling me to be. My natural inclinations at times is, to, is Netflix, not the ambient, but Netflix, you know. We find ourselves in hardship and we doubt God's goodness. I think it's because we forget the ways of God. And so we need to look to Christ, who is our confidence, and hold fast to him as we fight against that temptation to turn back. So how is it then that we're to hold fast and fight? Our passage shows us two things, right? We do this together one day at a time. We do this together one day at a time. First, we experience rest together. Our passage says we are his house. We share in his heavenly calling. We have come to share in Christ. Let us fear. Let us Strive as Christ's household. Second, we do this together one day at a time. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness 
of sin. Now, most likely you didn't pick up on this, but part of that saying is a joke, at least in the first century. They had like a little bit different sense of humor than we do. Um, here's the joke. As long as it's called today. And every day is called today. Right? You get it? Okay, that's the joke. All right. Those of us who have this hope in the gospel are to fellowship together, to help each other one day at a time, challenging each other with the word of God, which is active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it cuts deep inside us, just like it did to Job, to show us our constant need of the gospel. As a church, we need to do this together. We need each other, at least as long as it's called today. We are to exhort one another. To exhort literally means to urge, advise, or caution earnestly, to encourage. So let me ask you, are you actively involved in the life, the body life of this house, Grace Presbyterian Church? Do you see how God has given us a heavenly calling to be his called out ones? Think of this. We are God's display home wherein the world gets to see his glory and his mercy and his grace. Daily, we're to encourage one another, remind each other about our Savior, to remind one another of where our confidence is to be found. We may boast together. Worship is boasting, is it not? These words we sing, these deep, rich words, we sing them. We're boasting in our confidence. So this morning, let me see that God has called us into his household and it is in his household that the rest of God comes to us. We've seen that we're to hold fast to Christ. We're to fight for the rest that only he can give us. But please remember this. Ultimately, we can rest in Christ because he was the one who was faithful. He was the one who fought for us. He fought for our rest. When I shared the gospel with Anna this past week, I pointed her to the reason why she can have confidence that God is good, even though he allows great hardship. How, she asked. I say, God doesn't give us a rational argument. He gives us a faithful person. Christians would have no good answer for how God is all-powerful and all-loving, and yet suffering exists, were it not for the fact that God sent his own son to suffer in the world. And to fix that. Listen, God does not give you an answer that we can wrap our heads around. He gives us his son to wrap our hearts around. This morning we've come to see that our hope for rest can only be found in Christ. The son of God has, he's the one who's created all things and he rules over all things. And he's the one who's going to eventually one day bring us about this renewal in the age to come, which is a greater promised land to come. He is the deliverer far greater than Moses. Jesus is faithful over God's house as his son. He is building a display home of God's mercy and grace. And he will safely deliver us into the peaceful rest in the age to come. My friends, our rest, listen, is in his hands. And his hands have the nail marks to prove that he fought for our rest and won. This is the gospel we've come to believe. This is the confession which gives us hope. And so when 
circumstances in our lives cause us to be restless and cause us to maybe want to go back to the old way of treating our restlessness, may we remember that we have come to share in Christ. We share in his sufferings that we may also share in his glory. And he meets us in our sorrow that he may give us his peace. My friends, may our hearts not be hardened, but may they be filled with the hope of Christ, and may we hold fast to this hope as long as it's called today. Let's pray. Father, our hearts really are restless. Just sitting um, under this word, we, we realize that, that we don't even acknowledge how restless we are and how much we need Christ to give us this peace. May we today, as long as it's called today, look up and consider Christ, the great apostle uh, and high priest that lived and died for us, to give us rest, true and genuine rest. May we, when tempted to return to our old ways, may we turn to Christ instead. May every moment of our days be filled with this Hope that we have in him, we pray. Amen.